Hello, welcome back, everyone. This is Acid Horizon on Zero Books. And today we have with us a friend and comrade from the Flatline Constructs reading groups. It's James. James is with us here today. And we're going to talk a little bit about Mark Fisher, the progress that we've made in our reading group, and our impending reading of William Gibson's Neuromancer. Now, what I found fascinating about this book, and I have a hard copy here, this is the, or I say translation, the one forwarded by ex-military, is that we get a picture of the early Mark Fisher, and there are some things happening here that may look a little bit different from the Fisher that we see in capitalist realism and the Fisher that we see in what would then be the sort of beginnings of acid communism. But there's also some recognizable notes as well. And we were hoping that we could touch on that today while addressing the concept of flatline constructs. What is a flatline construct? What was Mark Fisher trying to do with this? And for this, we bring James along because James was is an important voice in the reading group. And now that he's here today, we can, we, can, we can talk about his experience, not only in our re- reading group, but what he's done before and his encounter with the text. So James, welcome. Ple- feel free to give your own introduction and what is going on with Mark Fisher and Flatline Constructs. Sure. Yeah. I mean, thanks for having me on. I've been really enjoying the reading group so far and just like Asset Horizon in general. Oh, I guess for a bit on me, I'm a MA student in media studies at the University of Colorado. I recently started as a certificate student at the New Center as well, which has been really interesting. And yeah, I guess with Flatline Constructs, it's been a text I'm really interested in. Actually, last fall, I facilitated a reading group on it in the Existence is Innocent Discord community, which I think is now defunct. But regardless, it was a really interesting experience. And you know, coming back to it again this time around, I'm sort of asking maybe some different questions with what I'm trying to get from the text. But yeah, like you mentioned, this is you know early Fisher that there isn't much of writing from him from this period outside of the CCRU text, at least as what's available. And those are you know in a different register, I guess, than later Fisher of capitalist realism, Ghost of My Life. And I think what's really interesting about flatline constructs is you, you really get to see I, what I would say is like the bridge between CCRU to K-Punk, I guess. And what, I guess what's going on here, just as a general overview for those unfamiliar with the text, is that Fisher's looking at works of primarily science fiction and cyberpunk more specifically. And as well, mainly I'd say like Deleuze and Guattari, Baudrillard, and Marshall McLuhan, and trying to, I guess what I would say is extend existing theories of science fiction. You know, he's going to reference Frederick Jameson as well for his kind of literary theories about postmodernism and science fiction. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of generally what Fisher sets out to do is to sort of do this overview. And I think the main text, like you mentioned, William Gibson's Neuromancer, as well as Cronenberg's Videodrome are two key reference points, as well as the, the Ridley Scott Blade Runner and the book it was based on, Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep. But yeah, I think that's a, a good starting point, just if anyone's not familiar with the text, I guess, yeah, what's covered and what Fisher's setting out to do and why it's relevant. Yeah, what I see him trying to do here is not only develop this concept of flatline constructs, but also this notion of gothic materialism, which I think is so important. And one of the things that he brings to this sort of vector of scholarship is, for example, in theorizing gothic materialism, he juxtaposes Deleuze and Guattari with Baudrillard as occupying either side of the divide of this Gothic materialism where Deleuze and Guattari represent the, the sort of positive or perhaps even optimistic version of, of this Gothic materialism and Baudrillard occupying this sort of negative role. Actually, maybe I'll, I'll turn to Adam because Adam is, is quite invested in this work. What, what's Gothic materialism? Just to sort of give it more sort of foreground this a little bit because this is occurring whilst Fisher is doing his PhD which is this is Fisher's PhD under Sadie Plants conducted in Warwick sort of late 90s I think I think almost to the early 2000s you can still actually access this uh, thesis on Warwick's website and fundamentally what Fisher's trying to do here is to use cyberpunk fiction which is fundamentally a, a poetics a speculative imagination about what computers can do and what the acceleration of time under conditions of instantaneous communication and communication across virtual networks, you know, what William Gibson would term as cyberspace, and to use that to produce a new theory of materialism, which, which he calls Gothic materialism. Now, Gothic materialism 
for him is equivalent to cybernetic realism, which is to say that the real can be understood cybernetically as a system of interlocking functions, essentially a model of a, essentially you can understand reality by modeling it in terms of a cybernetic system of inputs and outputs, which feed back upon each other to correct themselves, to direct themselves in new kinds of ways, be it negatively in the sense of negative feedback, where a system is, for example, move, a system has an, a mechanism within it that a limit or pushes back against a certain direction of travel. Well, the classic example of a negative feedback mechanism is, of course, a thermostat, because a thermostat relies on periodically turning a heat source on and off in order to maintain a stable temperature at the desire, you know, to the desire of the person who is using it. And so if the heat level is going up, the thermostatic sort of regulator moves against that heat going up by turning off the heat and therefore moving against the direction of travel of the body of the thing being heated, which is, of course, the heater. And it's very similar to the root of the word cybernetic, which is kyberios, kybernetes, steering. You know, if you're steering a, a boat and you want to go right or you want to keep going center on somewhere, you know, you, you go, you go, you go take the steering wheel, you go really far to the right, and then suddenly you gradually take it back to the left so you can go on to a certain course that you want. And then you have positive feedback, which is really what the CCR you are focusing on here. Positive feedback, it's a little bit like exponential growth. You know, you have, you have two rabbits in the fields, a couple of months later, you've got 300 of the fuckers. Or, for example, cancer, it's a positive feedback loop. Or panic in a crowd. You know, there was a case, I remember, years ago in London. It was in Oxford Circus Station, which is on like, the big main shopping street in London. And someone knocked over a traffic cone, made a huge bang. One person started running, suddenly... Well, some person sees that someone's running. So shit, something's, you know, they heard a bang, there might be a bomb, then they start running. And then suddenly 40 of them start running, then like three, and, you know, the whole station is in panic. And that's the kind of feedback system we call positive feedback, which accelerates in the direction of travel that the system is going. Now, to read things cybernetically in this sense is, to, as we said, negative and positive feedback mechanisms, but also cybernetics is the science of control and communication in the animal machines. It's about using feedback as a means of controlling direction of systems, accelerating them in some ways, redirecting them in other ways. But also, how do you talk about a cybernetic system in terms of feedback? You talk about the way in which systems communicate both internally and externally, such that new information comes into the system as feedback, as data, in a way that you can now correct the course or accelerate it off course, so to speak. So the theory of materialism that Mark Fisher is putting forward here is going to be the central one of the CCRU, which is cybernetic realism. It is all flows of data and communication. It is all material flows of data and communication. And the question is, now we have technologies that embody this and show it to us in a brute fact. The brute fact here is the screen. The screen is for what Mark Fisher also calls the Gothic flatline. Now, the term flatline comes from Gibneuromancer, Particularly, the idea of a flatline construct comes from a character who is known as the flatline, who is this guy who plugs himself into cyberspace, once fried his brain, had brain death, came back. That's why he's called the flatline. However, in by the time you get to the book in Neuromancer, and I'm sorry to spoil the book, but it's really old now, it's like the big spoiler, the flatline is already dead. He lives as a construct, a datafied version of himself, kind of like in the game Cyberpunk 2077, Keanu Reeves, is just this a memory bank personality and a simulation of the personality. The flatline construct is that. And the point of calling it a flatline construct for Fisher is that the flatline is very similar to the screen itself. Because on the other side of the screen, all you have is functions. And functionality and activity is therefore, for him, it's indifferent to whether the agency that's enacting these kind of things, you know, Keanu Reeves can still do things to you on Cyberpunk 2077, but he's dead. I mean, this, here's, a, here's how he defines the Gothic flatline. A, a plane where it is no longer possible to differentiate the animate from the inanimate and where to have agency is not necessarily to be alive. The Gothic flatline designates a zone of radical imminence, and to theorize this flatline demands a new approach, one committed to the theorization of imminence. This thesis calls that approach Gothic materialism. Now, to sort of present this in like a very blunt image. So so if you're listening to this, 
right now. No, we have a, we so editing. We use a tool sometimes called Descript, which processes our voice and they can actually replicate our voice sometimes. You don't know if I'm alive or dead. If you're listening to this, if you're watching this, I could simply be, you know, an AI generated mishmash of the same background, the same motions I usually make, the same references to cybernetics I've been regurgitating for God knows how many episodes. <laughs> the functionality and the agency of what I can do to you through talking, you know, which is provoke an image, promote an idea, provoke an idea, provoke a line of imagination. I now disconnected from my actual life because I have been translated into a construct playing back. I mean, you're seeing me through the screen, but really the, the thing that's actually acting to project an image of me through the screen is a system of, of, of chips. It's sand we talk to think. I'm, I'm just talking sand to you people right now. That's not to sort of denigrate myself, but in Fisher's terms, this is the reduction or not the, the delinking of a, a transcendental, central, fluffy humanist subject from its own operability, its own material functions. Because the age of communication allows us to record ourselves and have agency as if we were not present and even as if we weren't alive. So that then brings us to the question of these various sort of interpretations of not only the flatline construct, which Adam did a fantastic job of explicating, but also this concept of a body without organs is kind of operating in the background here. And maybe we can talk about those, those two things in conjunction with one another. Um, one of the things that I think everyone should read when they pick up flatline constructs is the introduction by ex-military. It's, it's brilliant. And it's there that we get a couple of quotes that sort of set us in the right direction to you know, describe what a flatline is. And I thought I'd read the quotes and then maybe we can kind of talk about, you know, some of the philosophical mediators that are behind Deleuze and, and, and we'll get James's take on this too. So the, the question is, what is a flatline? The flatline is where everything happens, the other side, behind or beyond the screens of subjectivity, the site of primary process where identity is produced and dismantled, the line outside. And in parentheses, we, we get Deleuze. Delineates not a line of death, but a continuum unfolding, but, or maybe continual unfolding, but ultimately going beyond both death and life. And, and the note there in, in Fisher's text was Foucault, in, in parentheses. Ex-military says, the highway machine is a flatlining of previous modalities of control and surveillance complicit in its own immaterialization. So when we think about the idea of a control society, and the proliferation of cybernetic technologies. I like this idea that there is this incessant process of becoming immaterial. And this is, this kind of inhabits the provocation that Fisher puts forward, which is asking ourselves this question What if we are not alive, but in fact, we are as dead as the machines are, right? And he brings in this concept of the anorganic continuum right? As if everything that exists from my body, my skin, my blood, my bones, exists coextensively and in, in the sort of same field of operation as my computer, my camera, my microphone, all linked together on this sort of flattened out surface ontologically where everything is connected as a singular machine, but all is dead and the sort of presiding non-organic or anorganic entifying energy or machine is this 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 disruptive body without organs which which dismantles this sort of traditional notion of subjectivity that we have and and it's interesting fisher goes to deleuze and gatari quite a bit to say that subjectivity and this is something they get from anti-oedipus is subjectivity is something that that happens alongside these other processes you know whereas when we look to for example, Cartesian notions of the mind and body, you know, things that we get even in Freud, for example, that this idea of the head, of the the, the kyber, as it were, right, that sits atop the, the rest of this mass is that which is functioning and controlling us. But what Fisher is saying is that in the cybernetic age, that locus of control gets displaced and everything gets flattened out. 
into this sort of cybernetic and organic continuum. But anyway, that's my take on, on flatline constructs. James, I was hoping you could kind of fill in the blanks. What is your sort of perspective on, on that, maybe in relation to some of Fisher's philosophical mediators? Sure. And I think as you were, you were just talking about with, when you were talking about the inorganic continuum, I think the sort of inspiration for that most directly, he said, it's his, uh, Donna Haraway's, our machines are disturbingly lively while we ourselves are frighteningly inert. And I think, you know, that you could, you could think about that the entire time reading this and just see how much of like a deep effect that had on Fisher and, you know, the, the rest of the kind of Warwick cybernetic stuff going on. And, and, you know, and just to kind of go back to what Adam was talking about with the cybernetic realism as a, the understanding for Gothic materialism that, you know, he, he was talking about with this sort of positive feedback processes. And I think what's the kind of maybe core or Gothic elements to this on, on the one hand, like, yes, there, there is the kind of the, he talks about unlife, this kind of, you know, he uses the golem myth as an example that you have something that is made of clay, but it comes to life and it begins to, to move about. And I think that, that the a notion of the unintended consequence of the, the actions, which you yourself set in motion is where the sort of science fictional exciting plot elements that he pulls out of these texts come back to bear. He takes that that sort of process as the the kind of return of some kind of runaway feedback and some aberrant cause, you know, that we would say is, that he would say is like an agency without a subject. That that kind of represents why this kind of cybernetic acceleration is not just about time, but it's about space as well, because. For him, it's the cybernetic realism is also a realism about cyberspace. You know, he, and he's, he's often using Gibson's understanding of cyberspace in Neuromancer, where, you know, in, in the book, the character, the main character, Case, and you know, the other characters as well, they, they jack in to cyberspace. And in that, you know, it's this very mechanical cyborg kind of conjunction with information flows. And, you know, what we would today think about, you know, as the internet, but it's, it's, it's a very embodied experience. You can think of it like entering the matrix, except there's a physical kind of jack, jacking in. And that's that, that, that idea that where they're going is, is a, is a real place is that's like partly the most important, like, I think declaration that kind of Fisher wants to say. And I think you can understand that both through that, okay, well, this is, you know, the internet is always going to be constituted by these kinds of cybernetic information processes. But at the same time, the sort of aberrant, let's say, golems or the replicants, if we're going to talk about Blade Runner, that the consequences of this kind of runaway feedback are themselves the, the sort of agencies that get conjured. And it's this kind of, you set, you set, the, you set something in motion and if it begins to, you know, act about in ways that you did not anticipate, you did not plan, that's, you know, you're, con you're confronted with the possibility that there's an agency within this. And that's the kind of our machines are disturbingly lively side. And the, the we ourselves are frighteningly inert side would then be that, you know, he opens the, the book with this passage, you know, without, without recounting it, but it's, it's a uh, Gustav Mernick and he's, he's reading about, he's, he's the, the, the Basically, the poem or the aphorism talks about, you know, he's watching these newspapers floating in the wind at different rates and that, you know, they, they look as though they're moving on their own accord, despite the fact the narrator knows it's wind. And he wonders, you know, what if we ourselves are, are dancing out this kind of unknowable, unpredictable dance? And there's just this wind that we cannot see, that we cannot feel, that is blowing through us and causing us to move. And I mean, and that is the, the opening lines of the introduction to the text. And so I, I just think on, on kind of both sides of that, it's, you know, that's part of the, the flat line, right? It's where those two ideas meet. It's that we are more material, less, less of this kind of, I don't know, more than material beings. And that's, he wants to tear us down on the other side. If we want to, to bring down, force down the agencies that come from the material, that's also going to be elevated. And where we meet can also be thought of that. That's the flat line is where those two things meet. It's very easy to, you know, link to someone like Nick Land when we talk about Mark Fisher and cybernetics. But I think, yeah, one of the things that gets lost in understanding of Fisherian or Fisher's relationship to cybernetics and the cybernetic culture research units is that the text like Flatline Constructs is just dripping with cyber feminism. You know, the, you have the cyborg manifesto of Donna Haraway, as the quote you, you brought up, of course. And of course, you have Sadie Plant, who, you know, his book Zeros and Ones is about looking at actually you know, the kinds of labor, the kind of very concepts of digitality, literally the digits on our hands tied to the process of weaving and go, yeah, the history of computers actually inextricably tied to the ideas of gendered labor when it comes to weaving and digitality of gendered labor in a way that there is a new possibility of a new digital femininity, as it, you know, as Eddie Plant calls it, new digital women. And I think the agency here is that 
in understanding ourselves not as these self-enclosed subjects or sort of transcendentally confined or you know confined simply as thinking things attached from the world understanding ourselves cybernetically for fisher is understanding the self or understanding the, the, the material beings we are as modular and therefore we can reconfigure them we can sort of short circuit the ways in which we're configured and there's the agency of something like blade runner which is as in the replicant and this is one of the ways that someone like that and and, uh, also the ctru generally does think about them is that they don't have a mother they are detached from the familial triangle and one could reconfigure themselves in the cyberspace i mean this is the idea for example with the idea of a body of our organs this is this is what gibson is doing really with wintermute and eventually the ai neuromancer itself wintermute and neuromancer are both ais who are who are operating of their own accord through various personae. The interview is just ultimately just a, a sub-personality of Neuromancer. And how does Wintermute commute? Wintermute doesn't always commute through telephones. It also commutes through Armitage, who's the guy who hires Case to do the jobs. And who is Armitage? Armitage is a former schizophrenic who is, his brain has been reconfigured with, by some sort of AI therapy but really he's just being piloted. His his brain has been reconfigured into a new subjectivity. And there's a great theory of escape we get from that. Everything from sort of, you know, Joetian's Afrofuturism to Plant and Haraway, and even to some of the, the cybernetic, the sort of cybernetized futures we get in the, the Marxist sort of fictions of, of Karl Neville, of course. And I think this is the point of the materialism is not simply to shock us, but to also sort of find new kinds of agency. I mean, of course, Fisher does lay down a lot on the horror. He, at one point, equates cybernetic realism to body horror. But it's the body horror that your body can change. You know, for example, he focused on Videodrome, James Woods putting a VCR into himself. Or the very fact that, you know, my ears, in a sense, in an intensive virtual sense, are now stretching all the way to where, where you all are. And say, well, my eyes are stretching that way. In the same way that occasionally I feel a twitch like a phantom limb in my pockets that my phone has vibrated. You know, it's, it, it is, it is like Chalmers extended mind theory, but it is really the body is being reconfigured. We can now plug it into stuff. And this is, this, this is an old school Marxist idea, really, which is the idea that cat, you know, as capitalism proliferates new technologies or at least, you know, proliferates them to reproduce itself, it also creates new needs. Very few people needed a train. <laughs> for, for, for most of you, most of humanity, people have not needed trains. They have not needed, you know, performance review forms. They have not had a need for you know, news or internet, internet connectivity in the ways that we become dependent on it for, you know, how we regulate ourselves now. People didn't need, for example, watches, which are accurate to the minute because we wasn't being pressured to go as, to miss many places with such accuracy because the work structure of labor and therefore labor time was different. So I just really want to pick up that strand and sort of link it back to this sort of wider tradition where he's not just being sort of a, a goth for the sake of, of gothness. Yeah, Adam, and I think especially in what you were just saying, especially, you know, you were talking about uh, Armit- uh, Armitage and Wintermute as well as in the examples of, you know, whether it's a watch or anything else. I think what, what Fisher, when he, when he says is, I think, the words used as the key to decoding Neuromancer is Deleuze and Guattari's Orchid and the Wasp example. The, the sort of the, the Orchid Wasp assemblage sort of territorializes the, the Wasp to become the reproductive organ of the Orchid because, you know, the way Orchids reproduce is they have pollen, you know, bees, wasps come along, pick up the pollen, deposit it on other flowers, and that the flowers themselves do not need organs capable of reproduction because the wasp is their organ of reproduction. And, you know, you were talking about Winter, Winterview occupying Armitage as a sort of a mask as he's he's donning someone else to to sort of, and what he's really doing is <clears throat> he's using, he's using, he's, he's territorializing Armitage through this schizophrenization, this sort of rebuilding him up from his, you know, his, his like a catastrophic helicopter crash or whatever to, to use him as an organ for his reproduction. I mean, that's what Case and Bali and you know, the gang are up to in, in Neuromancer is they're, they're being duped. I mean, again, spoilers, but they're being duped into acting as winter mutes and Neuromancer's sort of recombination. And, and this sort of reproductive organ is what all of them become. And, you know, as you were to kind of bring it back down from the science fiction to the examples you were talking about with whether it's trains, whether it's watches, that 
you know, and Fisher's always, he, you know, he, he sticks with this kind of understanding of capital, at least in the background for the, for the rest of his career, that we are, you know, are its organs of reproduction. That, you know, he, he has this line in another K-Punk post where, you know, the, the capital mind virus has occupied me too, right? And, he, and in that, you know, wider context of that quote, he's talking about sitting at a desk and working, you know, like you said, Adam, we never, we never needed to do, you know, whether it's the watch or the train, the things that facilitate our participation in capital's organs of reproduction. How does, how does the system perpetuate itself? It perpetuates itself through us as, you know, and that confronts ideas of agency. Which is really what flatline constructs is always doing. It's it's confronting someone's maybe Fisher would say naive like attachment to this really independent agency because yeah what what we are sort of we are, we are the wasps of the orchids you know and and at the same time though we would think of ourselves as the orchids and we send our machines out to do our bidding and to you know maintain and reproduce ourselves and what he's always going to do is he's going to take those kinds of dualisms he's going to show the way they um, determine one another. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a sort of important grounding, I guess. And, you know, I think it's, it's only a two page section on the orchid and the wasp, but even, you know, it's, it's as clear as can be about why it's so important for understanding these science fiction texts. And then I guess also with, you mentioned James Woods and the VCR and Videodrome, that, that is again, I mean, he, the new flesh is the perpetuation of this Videodrome cybernetic kind of apparatus that James Woods becomes re-territorialized and becomes an organ in, in, in the kind of maybe more sexual sense in the movie explicitly, but yeah, it's, it's the same kind of message that Fisher's pulling out of all the science fiction. Great. Yeah. I, I can't remember if Fisher mentions it or not, but I think Adam's example of the missing phone from your pocket as the kind of phantom limb of, you know, this massive cybernetic skin that were, that stretches over all of us is really an apt example of a kind of gothic materialism in the sense like it's almost like an amputation when it's not there but not only that you know think about when we're in the shower for example and we're away from our technologies even that sort of negative cybernetic space becomes deterritorialized by the cybernetic in those moments where we have the shower thought that becomes a tweet later on. It becomes a sort of incubation device, an alchemical retort for us. Like, this is what we're going to do once once we towel off. And maybe maybe even we're not fully toweled off yet to fire off that tweet. This is something that we talked about with Cooper in our episode on Baudrillard and ecstasy. But that aside, I wanted to talk about capitalism a little bit because I think what we get inside flatline constructs is it a sort of incipient, or burgeoning theory of capitalist realism in, in some way. Because, I, I mean, there's even a line in the text where Fisher writes, you cannot penetrate that which already envelops you. And and clearly his theory of the cybernetic is one of this, the, this massive ongoing construction of a digital envelope in, into which we are all inserted and that we become part of it, it itself. And I was wondering, what is the role of Marx in this? What is the role of capital in all of this? Do, do we really see the, you know, as I'm suggesting, an, an incipient theory of capitalist realism? And also, what does that, um, how does that impact perhaps our critiques of Fisher maybe not only here, but in capitalist realism. Like, he, I, there's a way in which I think Fisher sets us up to not find lines of flight outside of the cybernetic. Does he provide us with, with any tools or, you know, does he gesture towards any possible escapes, save the exception of becoming fully integrated with this machine in some way? And, and James, I'll start with you, but I, I know Adam and Will might have some, something to say about that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you said talking about Mark Fisher, but also his, yeah, where does Marx come into this? He, his, he, he gets the quote, his favorite of all Marxist lines, British industry, vampire-like could, but live by sucking blood and children's blood too. You know, this kind of, uh, it, it, vampire-like lives the more, the more it sucks that for him, you know, that that's this, again, this kind of Gothic element that's, that's Marx's uh, Gothic capitalism, that it is this kind of viral propagation mechanism. And, and again, to bring in a virus is even better example of like orchid wasp kind of territorialization, because, you know, what does a virus do to a cell? 
hijacks its DNA, begins to turn the, the, the host cell into basically just a vehicle for re- replicating the virus that, you know, the cell dies because it spends all its energy pumping out more viruses. And to kind of return to capitalism and, and capitalist realism as well, that this idea that, that there is this kind of um, unknowable thing that is capitalism already kind of sets you up for a fatalism. Now, I think the, the the logic behind capitalist realism, I think, is actually takes a very different lineage than that than this one. I mean, Walt Jameson is still part of it. You know, he he he's he, he leaned on Jameson and, and Zizek as well for capitalist realism. But there's still this. I think there's more of a lineage about thinking about political futurity and politics is is almost entirely absent from flatland contracts and any. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not he's not. If capitalist realism is talking about, I don't know, like Tony Blair, like like half the time, and you know what happened to the left, and where what what did neoliberalism do to the left? The words left and right don't even appear in flatline constructs. So I, I do think there's a there's a sort of similarity though in this kind of fatalistic perspective on capitalism. But as far as the lineages he takes from to get from one to the other, I guess you could say maybe there's a there's a maturing, right? He goes to more standard literary and cultural theory in you know the aughts, like you know in the years following flatline constructs. He moves away from this kind of you know '90s cyber theory and his theorizing of capitalist realism. But I do think what capital is. And it kind of remains consistent. And that is this unknowable thing that is, is it, 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 I don't know, the, the unprefix that Fisher kind of leans in on a lot on me, whether he takes that from unlife or, and, and you know, he, he takes like from Freud and beyond the pleasure principle. And he has a, a section in this book just kind of talking about that. And all this, I guess, to say that, that, that capitals, uh, I guess, Lovecraftian kind of beyond our control, beyond our realm of knowing or operating with. Yeah, I, I would say that's the, what you were trying to talking about. What 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 line of flight does Fisher present us in, in flatline constructs, and what final flight line of flight comes out of capitalist realism? It's no coincidence that there's not, because the capitalism we're dealing with is beyond human agency. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting just to make a a draw a parallel before I pass to Adam or Will. The one thing that Deleuze and Guattari say is that. And there's a there's a famous quote, I think it's in one of the Desert Islands interviews, where they say that within the context of capitalism, all transactions, all accruals of profit, all negative negative externalities all appear rational. The thing that does not appear rational is capital itself and sort of built into their idea or concept of the body without organs. This is the one thing that the flows of capital cannot break into is this entity that is capital itself. And so there's kind of a precursor to this Gothic materialism. You know, we can't break into the blob, as it were, or we can't break into that unnameable thing. And, you know, what what it is that will bring about moving to the outside. Well, that's actually the one thing that the Fisher does. He does say that that I recall just now is that the flat line is the line that takes us to the outside. But it does so in virtue of desubstantializing everything, turning everything immaterial. But with that said, I'll, I'll throw it to Adam or Will. So because we're like 40 minutes in and like I'm always the, the, the skeptic of, <laughs> of these sorts of materialisms, especially these ecologies that have within them, you know, some sort of absolutely spectral, brand new, never before seen modes of management. You know, when it comes to Fisher's understanding of the cybernetic or perhaps the cybernetic as such, I have to maintain a kind of strange admonitory tone here to say that a lot of this is found as far back as Machiavelli's The Prince. You know, the the management of the flow of fortune of the of the gap between administration and potentiality, right, that Deleuze talks about in the logic of sense, right, where where the revolutionary dwells is in the gap between the crisis and its management, right? My other fear here is that a lot of this discussion about the liveliness of machines meeting the inert nature of human life is transposing, on the one hand, a kind of old-school natural philosophy vitality onto a foreclosed political existence. And the other is to take the ledger that we understand as human capital, but also of labor potentiality in the marks of capital volume one and positing it as, as a vital force to read labor potentiality 
back in a sort of neo-Aristotelian fashion. So some of my concerns here is that it seems to me like one of the problems that Mark Fisher continues to have, and of course this is no surprise, is that he just lacks a reading of biopolitics together. You know, I, 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 I think that sometimes the way in which we talk about, say, the lost cell phone or something like that, or the interconnectivity or our machines is to create a figure of the cyborg which bypasses a history of abnormality and a history of normalizing power. And I think this is a problem that goes as far back as Donna Haraway, right? There was in the 90s or early 2000s an, an American author who wrote, I think, an equally problematic piece, but I just want to show that there, you know, this is a space of contention called the era of the triborg, right? Where we have smartphones now. So like we're all we're all cyborgs. And the author, if I can, I, I forget who it was, but she, she was very skeptical of this sort of approach to human authenticity. And I think that, I think that some of the ways in which, for example, Freud is utilized actually recalls back to Freud's relationship with early 19th century psychologies, especially the work of Charcot, on instinct, instinct and destiny. So I think that in, in some ways, a lot of what we see, because it's mediated by a form of communication that is somewhat new, the reality is that the biopolitics of life still, still lingers in our, in our complete lack or willingness to, to take into account what sovereignty stakes itself on, which is life, different ways, right? But the propelling of dead bodies, that we are living in a dead time as dead human beings where the machines are instead alive, transposes a kind of vitality to apparatuses of control and capture that I think we need to be very weary of. I think this is the same kind of technopositivism that, Craig, you were critical of in Marcuse when we spoke with Ray Brassier. You know, Mark Fisher's a great theorist. But he's still weighed down by the fact that he has a very particular, very English, and frankly, an accelerationist reading of Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari. So I, I just I want to maintain the problematic of administration, not insofar as I want to posit an opposition between d'état and the administration. Right? It's the claim between administration and human life, and the manageability of human life. And the production of human life as as a metaphysical substance, which means it's eminently, you know, it's it's machinated. It, it, it can be machined. I want to posit these things as not brand new and still as dangerous as they were, irrespective of the the new, you know, the new sheen that we might put on it given given contemporary communication. I know that I'm the that I'm the you know the Debbie Downer here, but <laughs> it's it's been a few days since I've I've been on Acid Horizon, so maybe this has all just been welling up <laughs> well can i press you for I an example oh sorry oh do you mind if i press you for an example yeah. on, on one thing because the the interesting sort of line that you said there is that this theory of the cyborg either bypasses or disconnects from the biopolitical or the biopolitical subject like if somebody pressed you to like me right now to put a finer point on that, like what, what is a specific instance or institution where you see a convergence between those problems? I would, I would see the, the problem manifesting in as much as the cyborg itself is treated as a kind of line of flight. I would say that in any mode of, or any game of power, any apparatus, any piece of technology, and we talk about this in, in the beginning of our book, you know, has within it gaps. But the idea that, you know, the era of the cyborg is something that, say, is foreign to the sovereign right to life and to make live mm. is, I think, wrong. I also think that it's guilty of engaging in, in the same thing that certain Marxists did in, in the 80s where they reduced the sovereign claim to life or the administrative claim to life to the management of labor potentiality, of labor power. Mm -hmm. you know, because the management of, of labor power is a facet of this, no question. But I think to flatten it to that 
and then to posit sort of the cyborg as you know the new modality with which this flattening takes place i think is a problem that doesn't mean that i don't think that the cyborg and these new modes of communication and so on all have possibilities for new forms of 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 ecstasis or a, you know a kenosis that can meet this new kinetics of power because i think everything is can be rendered at a certain point in inoperable right but it but it requires something more than an aesthetic understanding of contemporary capitalism which i think is oftentimes what mark fisher falls into is that he falls into really a philosophical aesthetics of, of political power and so yeah that's it for me all right adam well i mean i'd like to respond to that by sort of bolstering it yeah because i mean not only to think about books like, I mean, there's books of Will suggested before, like Melinda C. Hall's book, The Bioethics of Enhancement, where the, you know, the idea is that transhumanism is always like, you know, we're going to get rid of all of these abnormalities, perfect ourselves, you know. You know I, I, I ascended the blissful eternity of the machine, you know, like the Adeptus Mechanicus or Warhammer 40,000 or something. But I think one of the things that we, we pick up actually in the first part of the but we wrote, which is the first chapter, is called the Cyberpunk Present, which is one of the things that is is often missing from how central it is to cyberpunk is healthcare. Health cyberpunk is a genre steeped in the politics of healthcare because yeah, there's all this cybernetic, you know, cybernetic arms. Like people think cybernetics, they think of the cyborg. They think of you know, I've got an arm now which is ten times stronger. I've got uh, implants in my brain that release, you know, drugs, so I don't have to feel pain in the combat situation. I can have adrenaline boosters, you know, to get out of the fight. And ultimately, one of the main sort of themes in a lot of cyberpunk fiction is, okay, well, how do you maintain this? I mean, de- for example, the the, the Deus Ex games. There's the whole politics there of people with a mandatory, so they're forced to get biomechanical arms to be stronger lifters, to be day laborers and tradespeople, and then they're discriminated against for it. There's a, a pressure to augment oneself with cybernetic technologies. And fundamentally, it's also, you know, a cybernetic transhumanist might say, isn't this great? We can, we can correct the brain. We can erase all of these things, all these abnormalities. When, you know, this is a, this is a biopolitics of disability. People, you know, the transhumanists will say, we can, we can eliminate all these disabilities. And people will say, well, Actually, I'm fine as I am. Thank you very fucking much. I'd rather just not be. You know, it's actually society that is well, not not to jump too much into a so British social model disability here, but it is, for example, the idea of you know why is it always the bio the, the cybernetic legs and not the flying wheelchair? It just gives like a very sort of crude example, and I think this also goes back to the fact that, that cyberpunk is fundamentally. Sorry, I'm not actually. I was about to say cyberpunk is neoliberal. No, cyberpunk is a warning about neoliberalism. And mm-hmm. therefore, when we think about healthcare in, in the case of cyberpunk, it's always people trying to compete to make that next maintenance payment on their cybernetic organs. Case has to do the job for Armitage, or the sort of repairs that Armitage has had done to his nervous system will maybe be destroyed. Mm-hmm. This the, the, the fight for healthcare against institutions, because fundamentally the cybernetic implants you don't need them to be implants because what the implant does is a feedback sensor which picks up okay this person's in pain so i'm gonna go release some drugs or a cybernetic implant has maybe something like oh if you haven't made your payments your bio you know your, your cybernetic arm will shut down now we have these sensors and intervention mechanisms we just sort of put them in hospitals hospitals and clinics those are the cybernetic sensors and regulators the closest things we have to cybernetic implants today is stuff like your know, pacemakers of course and insulin pumps for example where you know it, it senses okay low blood sugar high blood sugar administer but of course obviously these are all regulated and their access to them by systems that rely on an incredible informational mapping of the bodies and the particular ailments and bodily differences that pass through them. And I think one of the ways in which cyberpunk sort of deals with this but also fails to deal with it, and this is quite a Baduian point for people who listened to the last Edit Horizon episode, is that the ontology of cybernetics that a lot of cyberpunk fiction promises is poetic. So once William Gibson said, you know, I used the word modem before I knew what a modem was. Because it was all about the poetics 
of it, the poetics of technology. And Badu talks about this, you know, this poetic ontology where there's always this excess of being just constantly withdrawing for us. And, you know, for Mark Fisher, there's also a similar kind of excess of particular you know, possible functions we can play and possible lives we could lead that these cybernetic things are offering us. But fundamentally, the cybernetic realism is this Baudrillardian, Baudrillardian thing of fully diving into the map because the map is more interesting than the territory and it's actually more expansive has more possibility for, te- for territorialization than the territory itself. The problem is, and we su- we've seen this really, I mean, Fisher saw this too, to some extent, is that the means of cybernation were privately owned. It wasn't a win to mute, this kind of glitchy AI, which is because everyone from Henry Kissinger to Eric Schmidt to Elon fucking Musk is afraid that they've made like Neuromancer. They're afraid that, oh, we've accidentally glitched the system. There's a little gap in our program. We haven't controlled it properly. And therefore, it's going to start communicating with us, working under our back. You know, Gibson brings this up, for example, with the idea of a Turing cop. A Turing cop is someone who polices AIs, make sure they don't go out of control, they stay in their place. Now, fundamentally, they're going to, there's going to be a Turing police existing soon. It's just the things they're going to be policing do not exist. ChatGPT's moderation is underpaid Kenyan workers. Most of the data packets that come in for surveillance and stuff like that is produced by people doing so-called micro-work, predominantly in refugee camps. Every time there's an AI, it is just a person. The AIs actually have nothing to do with technological devices. AI is actually the automation of processes of subjectivation that are done in the name of capitalist production, and the commodity that they produce is data. Data is a new kind of production because it's a commodity which doesn't rot. You can spend it again and again, circle it again and again, make data, make metadata on data. And that's the cyberpunk. The problem with cyberpunk really is that it's real. And it's far worse than we could have expected. It's not like we didn't get any gadgets from it. The gadgets weren't fantastic, but for example, phones are mandatory. Essentially a little tracking device after time that you always need to be producing data. Even, I mean, this is Sadly, some conspiratorial weirdos have picked this up for some reason and run wild about it because they think it's something to actually, you know, dominate them. But for example, contactless payments being like man- being increasingly mandatory on public transport in the UK. This isn't because they want to control where you are. It's just that they can sell data on, know which stations are more popular than others and stuff. But fundamentally, as we move on to a form of capitalism, which is producing more and more data, you know, feedback, management, is itself something management as a means of production. There we go. It's definition of cyberpunk. Why didn't I put that in the fucking book? We don't know. <laughs> James, go and, ahead. And I think, you know, Will, what you were saying about, about biopolitics and Adam, how you kind of tied that back to Neuromancer. I, I, I kind of agree. That's one of the maybe biggest like condemnations of this text. And, and, you know, Adam, as you were talking about when you're talking about Neuromancer, the way Armitage sort of recruits our protagonist case is that he has, he's, he, he, after, if I remember the book correctly, an experience in cyberspace gone wrong, something goes wrong, he's no longer able to access. And he also is, as I think, haunted by whether it's memories or physical pain from the kinds of trauma he's experienced as in cyberspace that, you know, he, he also uses drugs quite often. And the sort of the Fisher, whether it's Videodrome or Neuromancer, uses addiction as a kind of, and especially when he's talking about William Burroughs, as a kind of stand-in for, and I think the, the quote I have here is, the Burroughs theme of image addiction, or, or sorry, correct quote, addiction already a becoming inorganic of the organism is transferred over onto the technical machines as part of the production of artificial desire. And I think that right there is the sort of inhumanism that he's committed to that ignores biopolitical or, or agency as such, that this this idea that, that addiction, and especially for Case, because his sort of addiction is coming from the sort of trauma he's induced, and, and, you know, and that is also what Armitage is holding over him, is this capacity to heal. For Fisher and, and, and for Wintermute, you know, it's, oh, he's he's become functionalized. He's he's become part of, you know, he, he's the wasp to Wintermute's orchid. And, and addiction is just a means to an end for something inhuman, which what politics is there if you if you and your uh i don't know the struggles in your life can are, are just manipulatable and, and there's nothing really human about case he is he is a tool and his addiction was 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 the machine re-territorializing him it doesn't sound like there's any room for politics or humanity in this equation so i think that's yeah i mean a, a real sort of stop from the political in him yeah i'd also like to just like take this all the way back to 
the philosophy of right. Like I, because I think that the history of humanity as an object of refinement at the production of civilization, the production of humanity as an object, right, of control is inseparable from the history of civilization or from the, the civilizing project. And I think that in Hegel's philosophy of right, just before he starts talking about the nature of work, right, and just after he talks about what the police, right, but not police in the way we understand it, but the science of police, right? Polizei Wissenschaft, God, close enough. He, he, he makes a strange addition because he's talking about when social conditions tend to multiply and need subdivide, right? And this, this creates luxury, which then needs to be policed, right? Splendor is probably the better term. Splendor was the term that, that the policing sciences used, but Knox, Knox puts luxury. But he adds this strange addition because he's talking about bourgeois society, right? He puts addition. The entire cynical mode of life adopted by Diogenes was nothing more or less than a product of Athenian social life. And what determined it was the way of thinking against which his whole manner protested. Hence, it was not independent of social conditions, but simply their result. It was a rude product of luxury. When luxury is at its height, distress and depravity are equally extreme. And in such circumstances, cynicism becomes the is cynicism is the out, outcome of opposition to refinement. So what, what Hegel sees in Diogenes in his barrel is the virus of opposition to refinement. He sees he sees a react he misidentifies first of all he gets he gets the cynic mode of life wrong but that's a different different issue but what, what's more important is precisely what he sees he sees in the cynic mode of life the opposition to refinement and what exactly is hegel's account of political history well it's a history of recognition and opposition but most importantly it is the history of refinement so for for Hegel to see this in the cynic mode of life, and then Foucault, you know, over a hundred years later, to see it in a very different way, but with the same kind of strange centrifugality, and to see at the end of it another mode of existence, another kind of truth, and a truth that questions refinement, which is different, right, from the philosophical life, right, is, I think, really helpful here. Because I, I don't think any of these, like, to think that you can refine your way out of the philosophy of right, or to think that, that you know, the state withers away and in, in its place, what one finds is just the administration of things, you know, whether it's the Engelsian, Hegelian, or, you know, Corbinite imagination, it is a false one. So I think that the fact that that this that this uh, this refinement has always produced and looked for opposition in the centrifugality in the goings astray of of management i think shows that within this eugenic kernel that has manifested i think contemporarily in the cybernetic episteme one also has to trace this not transhistorical but you know, historical kernel that sprouts up in different ways in the cynic. So I, I don't know. I just think that, you know, there, there is a fundamental difference and there is a, there is a fundamental difference between cybernetic management and physiocratic management. But the centrifugality as the problematized object remains the same. And this other life is always haunting it mm. and it, and it dwells within it. So I think that yeah, I think that the cybernetic demands us not only to have a good understanding of technology, but to take a look again at everything from the way Machiavelli speaks of Fortuna to, you know, the way that the German and Italian police sciences understood, you know, virtue and the state splendor to human capital and Gary Becker, you know, to Peter Singer's practical fucking ethics. So I, I don't know. I think that the cybernetic doesn't just speak to the contemporary to the contemporary, but I think it's particularly untimely in that way. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like maybe another way to put that, and feel free to correct me on this, but it's almost as if the optimism that lies behind cyberpunk and cyberpunk aesthetics almost in a way presuppose. well, there, there's a, a kind of like Promethean optimism about it. And it almost presupposes its own refusal in a sense, because if a a figure of refusal or a a kind of subjectivity that refuses this optimism, refuses, you know, the sort of papering over of the 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 incipient or burgeoning critique of anything of of the Promethean cybernetic order. Well, the cybernetic conceit already has built into it this function to tamp it down. Does that sound accurate? Like maybe maybe you can kind of correct. That's a that's a I think a fantastic way to put this right yeah i think that i think that in a certain sense what's also being overlooked here and you know what i've touched on i think in the past in my graduate school work but never adequately and in fact it was a byproduct of a, of a piece you wrote on on maurice blanchot uh-huh. uh, was deleuze's notion of the dogmatic image of thought mm-hmm. and and the, the figure that refuses an image mm-hmm. of thought because i i, I I think I think that when you look at the way that philosophy of mind is trying to apprehend and take into account second what's it called second order cybernetics hmm. what we see actually operating underneath underneath all of this is not a computational model but actually a dogmatic image of thought that goes at least as far back as like you know the scholastic period hmm. of of a causal account of in- intelligible and intuited specias so I think, I think, yeah, I, 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 what I think is necessary instead is to, to do two things. A, to, to understand that gap that Deleuze speaks about in, in the logic of sense and try, try really to meditate on it and mm-hmm. take it seriously as an object of his philosophical work. Yeah. And B, to understand that the dark precursor is not your friend. <laughs> yeah, it's almost as if the cyber, the cybernetic is one of its functions is to put a defibril- defibrillator on rationality. Yes, oh, right. Yeah. Like that. That's 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 one. I of mean, them. read it. Read intelligence and spirit. Right. Like you can only yeah. get five pages in until you know Reza Negrastani is talking uh, is talking about like the education of disabled children. Like. He can't as fucking escape the the policing and the production of normalized and and abnormal bodies and minds. It's really fucking dangerous. Like we we consider this shit to be like cool and like a bunch of like fucking white grad students get to sit and have and pontificate about, you know, who can think, what does think, and and assume that that has no bearing on 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 apparatuses of control and capture. Like, for example, you know, every time you you meditate on something that you think is descriptive in, say, a Kantian account of of the subject that is there with me in any discursive representation, right, or judgment, that is always a prescriptive measure, right? And that's the that was the great merit of Deleuze's work is to understand to understand that when Kant when Kant develops the the B deduction or really even much earlier in the critique, provides the categories, he multiplies his problems. So, like, I just, I just think that everything from, you know, the account of philosophical right to an account of the juridical subject to an account of the subject of capacities, all of this swirls around a history of philosophy that is trying to instrumentalize and to render operative the human being as a as an individual of capacities as an individual of of rights that are established through you know deduced capacities right the jurid- like the juridical deduction in kant is is essentially like if if all of this is true you know if none of this is true you know then all things are nothing to me right that's the 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 Geyer wood translation right and the first thing i thought of was like well there's a certain there's a certain famous refrain from a certain figure of refusal in the history of post-Kantian philosophy, a certain young Hegelian who wasn't particularly popular and still pretty much isn't. But uh, yeah, anyway, I'm 
this isn't philosophical. I'm not saying anything <laughs> academic. So, Max Stirner sure. was not a young Hegelian. That is why everyone reads him wrong. He hated them all, and well, he didn't hate Egbert. He didn't hate Egbert Bauer, but he didn't hate Bruno Bauer as much. But he actually he he didn't hate them. He hated their philosophies because. Philosophers may forget this because it's mortal life and philosophy. But yeah, I mean, the, just, just to build on sort of the, the Schoenerian aspect here, the Schoenerian aspect is fundamentally the refusal to provide a theory of capacity. It's like, yeah, what, what can I do? What's in my power? What's in my power? Well, you'll know if, when the rev- you will know when the insurrection starts. You know, it's like the, you, you don't need the proletariat to suddenly go, we have the power. You'll know when they have the power because your trains aren't running, nothing's being produced, and all of your ports are blocked. You know, yeah, it's not like no, but by what right are they doing, Adam? Ask. With what claim? Quid Uris, Adam? Don't don't wait. Hold on. Don't the proletariat doesn't the proletariat wage war because it is the just and right thing to do? Isn't that what it's supposed to be about? Isn't it? Isn't aren't we constituting the true universal power? I mean, what else is the march of history other than the establishment of a dictatorship of the proletariat that takes it by right? Anyway, I'm going to step in here and pull Will off of. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to what's germane for the time being. We're almost, we're basically over the hour mark, and I want to give James a chance. You know, we've certainly shown our hand here today, James. What What are your big takeaways from this? What is your view, or what sort of commitments do you have to the work that's being done here? Where perhaps do you diverge from Mark Fisher? Let us know. Yeah, and you know, I think I think we've sort of covered, I think, the the main, the main, I guess, topics brought into focus by this book. Yeah, we've talked about the body extensively and the way Fisher is using it as a, as a tool for inquiry, but also, you know, the way space is and cyberspace is, is recontextualized as sort of extensions of the real. And I think that that latter for me, I think is, is where I personally pick up from this work and see a sort of a sort of past a path forward in a, this this text is kind of being a transition to maybe like a, a post Driardian media metaphysics, where you know the the idea that I think Fisher takes from from land of of the implex and the way he talks about cyberspace as a fold as as you know whether whether it's the the, the real physical servers running you know that that cyberspace is is something physically located in the real but it's just totally unlocalizable that that going from there and, and and talking about that process of this kind of production of space whether cyberspace or otherwise as as for me I think the the, the place where uh, talking about media and talking about things that happen in in the digital becomes very relevant. You know, I, I came to this text and, and the work of Fisher broadly, like I think many people over the last two years during the pandemic, where you know we were all online twenty four seven for you know and, and, and connecting and communicating with one another and you know meeting new people and you know if I'm not mistaken, Asset Horizon kind of spins out of this That's as well and all of these different productions that kind of came out. Of as, as not solely cyberspatial existence, but at least a significantly more cyberspatial existence. That I think what's afforded by the way Fisher treats cyberspace in this, and this is, I'm not saying he's the one who came up with this, it's just what this text has done for me is that you then have, okay, well, this is not an out, this is not an outside, you know, this conversation we're having right now. This is face to face. Sure, there's, there's mediation going on, but I'm not going to posit some, some pre mediated state anyway. And I think that's the kind of sort of post-Baudrillardian step we can take uh, and not just decry everything as hyper-real. Because if you're going to do that, well, then the last three years have been a pretty shitty time for you, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> all we've done is is live increasingly in fakeness and cyberspace. And, you know, that that kind of perspective, I just think, is, is, is a very cynical, apolitical, kind of fatalist strand that comes from a perspective on media. So I guess for me, the, the main takeaway and, and the real productive aspect i find of this is 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 really the, the the cybernetic realism is the 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 what we can take from this is what happens in cyberspace we, you know, we call it the digital now we call it not really cyberspace anymore but that, that what happens there is real and that is i think you know wh- whether he takes that lots of different ways i think that is also a different strand and a path maybe not taken as much by the accelerationist canon you know, if they were primarily interested in time, which is why they eventually landed on through Benjamin Noyes 10 years later, the term acceleration to talk about time. I think there's a, there's a strand about space and about cybernetic realism. 
And maybe we could, you know, rethink as well the ways that like problematic aspects of say Haraway, as you know, we were kind of talking about earlier and, and sort of rethink those through a different kind of strand of cybernetic realism that doesn't rely so much on time, that focuses on space and that really prioritizes, you know, individual experience in, in spaces otherwise left out of the picture. Right. James, before we go today, is there anything that you want to plug? I, I know that you had a Flatline Constructs reading group, and I believe you even created maybe an audiobook version of at least some of the chapters. Is that correct? Yes, but those have unfortunately been taken off YouTube. We oh, have no. to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you do have a Discord link or something that you want to pass to us later, I'll throw it in the show notes if folks want to get in there. And just for anybody who's listened this far, well, I'm assuming that you at least have some interest in flatline constructs. The reading group is still ongoing and we have all of the recorded episodes on the Patreon account for Zero Books and Repeater Media. And come fall, we will do William Gibson's Neuromancer together in conjunction with this book. And also check us out on Asset Horizon where we have a few reading groups as well. So James, I just want to say thanks for coming on and we really appreciate your voice in the reading group. Thanks for having me. Yeah, been a great experience. We appreciate your support of the imprint and the channel. Subscribe to Zero Books today on Patreon. Your material support helps us to promote a variety of perspectives on the left. Also, discover the many titles, new and old, that Zero has curated. Navigate to any of the links in the show notes to extend your support.